Welcome back to the Earn Your Edge podcast. I'm Corey Lumberg from Altus Performance. And before we get into this week's episode, we want to announce our first anniversary giveaway winner. A few weeks ago, Titleist put together a prize package to help us celebrate the first anniversary of the podcast. And thanks to everyone that took time to submit a review of all the submissions, we randomly selected Eric Lawler. So congrats to Eric and thanks as always to Titleist for being an awesome partner to us with pretty much everything that we do at Altus. And just because the contest is over doesn't mean that you shouldn't take a quick second to submit a review at iTunes. We would certainly appreciate it. And maybe you will be so inclined after listening to this week's episode that features an awesome conversation between Cam and probably one of the hottest coaches in all of golf right now, Phil Kenyon. I've really been looking forward to this one. I've run into Phil a few times at events and we've tried to coordinate schedules, but he's really difficult to pin down because he spends pretty much sun up to sundown on the putting green with the best players in the world. And as a coach, whenever you see another instructor that attracts so many good players, you can't help but be intrigued as to what exactly he's doing to produce such amazing results week in and week out with a bunch of different players. Our current Open champion, Frankie Molinari, Gary Woodland just won the U.S. Open, along with a list of past and present students that includes Rory McIlroy, Henrik Stenson, Justin Rose, Tommy Fleetwood, uh, way too many others to name. So like I said, I've been eager to learn more about Phil and I'm gutted that I wasn't able to coordinate my schedule to join he and Cam for this chat, but they dig into some really good stuff, including Phil's background in golf and sports science. They specifically cover some of the work that he did with Justin Rose and some of the go-to drills and fixes that Phil uses often. And luckily they also dig in a little bit to Phil's philosophy and dealing with social media trolls, which if you haven't already followed Phil on Twitter, I highly recommend it because he has absolutely no time for trolls and it's pretty entertaining and watching him handle them. So there's a lot of good stuff in this chat. I'll let you get to it now. Please enjoy episode 41 of the Earn Your Edge podcast with Phil Kenyon and Cameron McCormick. I guess as a starting point, you know, it's one thing to become a tour coach or even the hottest tour coach in the game that specializes in putting. But what many don't understand, but I guess they fully recognize there are years of hard work behind the scenes that have gone into this rise to prominence over the last 10 or 15 years that you've been out traveling the PGA and European tour on a very regular basis. So you and I had a conversation at Augusta this year, and I thought it was just fascinating your early years developing your competencies as a coach, as a fitter. Can you give us the Reader's Digest, the either short or mid or even long version of your upbringing in the game of golf and how you became a traveling coach? Yeah, um, it's a fairly long story, I think. Um, I'd probably have to go back you know, to when I first got into the game of golf to give people a feel of you know, how I got to where I am now. You know, I started when I was 11. You know, my mum and dad, both active golfers, and they introduced me to the game. And it was that age that I got to know a guy called Harold Swash, who was um, an engineer by trade, who, who sort of latterly became a fairly, you know, well-known putting instructor and uh, designer of golf clubs, in particular putters. And Harold was a really good sort of family friend, really good friend of my dad's. So um, when I got into the game, I, I got to know Harold and got a lot, you know, spent a lot of time with him. So through my formative years as a golfer, you know, he helped me a lot with my putting. And um, sort of later on in life, I started to sort of help him a little bit when I was kind of in and around sort of 16, 17 years old. I used to caddy for him a bit, help him with some of his clinics, sort of, you know, carrying his equipment and stuff like that. And uh, so I kind of formed a really close relationship with Harold. And I, I went on to university, and it was after university that I decided to turn pro. You know, I had aspirations to be sort of a playing professional at that time. So I kind of kind of reconnected a little bit with Harold. He, he he helped me with a few things, get some sponsorship, get some free equipment, things like that, which are all valuable. And, um, you know, he was helping me with, with my own putting game. 
and as I aspired to be a professional, I obviously needed to, you know, playing mini tour stuff, low level stuff. You know, there's not a lot of money that's coming your way. So I was kind of trying to earn a little bit of money at the same time. So I would work with Harold and help him, you know, on a more of a formal basis with his putting instruction. And that's where the sort of passion for that kind of grew, really. You know, I played about five, six years and really didn't show enough signs to sort of continue in that vein. And I was really enjoying my coaching and uh, had an opportunity with Harold to take that a step further. So I put the clubs, you know, to one side and then pursued my coaching career. And at that time, I, I did my PJ at Hillside Golf Club under Brian Seddon who was my uh, home club pro, and I was doing some full swing stuff, but my goal or my primary focus was sort of, you know, building that relationship with Harold and, and uh, becoming more involved with him. So that's a kind of shortened version of a long story, but that's how I got into it. And you went to university, and I think this is very interesting for us to understand and studied psychology, sports science, correct? And where was the passion or the desire to study that as the subject matter? And did you think that that was going to, I guess, primarily, number one, help you as a performer, as a player? And then as a second or follow-up question, how does that inform your day-to-day practice now? Well, originally, I never really enjoyed school or high school so much. Um, I, I just wanted to play golf. Um, <laughs> Good for you. Yeah, but I, I did it. I, you know, my mum and dad always installed in me the importance in education and, uh, you know, to get qualifications and always try and do your best at whatever you do. So, I kind of did the minimal amount to get through, but I had enough success at school and high school. And then I applied to university, and I actually originally applied to, to Manchester to uh, study business. But I realised very quickly that's what I didn't. I didn't want to do that. That wasn't my passion, and um, I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do at that time. And I ended up taking a year out after college to to play golf because at that stage I was thinking, you know. It, it, is that for me? Do I want to play professional golf? You know, do I have a future? And so my mum and dad encouraged me to take a year out. And during that year, actually, my golf got worse. Mm-hmm. As a junior, I think I've done okay. I played for like England schoolboys and had some success. But in that gap year, my golf definitely did, you know, got worse. And I think, you know, I put pressure on myself and just the way I went, I went about things obviously didn't lead to me developing. But it was in that time I started to get an interest in psychology and in sort of performance enhancement and stuff like that. And I was reading you know, various like self-help books, Tony Robbins to Bob Rotella, all, all sorts of things like that. And it was during that period that I thought, you know what, this is something that I would actually enjoy studying. So I decided, you know, what, I'm going to go back to university. I can still continue with my golf. And uh, John Moore's university, which is Liverpool, was close to home. So it meant that I could stay at home. Um, which I thought would give me a good foundation to still, you know, be proactive with my golf. And they're one of the better institutions in terms of sports science and psychology. So I, I enrolled on a applied psychology and sports science degree. And um, it was probably one of the best things I ever did. It's the first time I really enjoyed education. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it opened up a pathway to learning, which, you know, has been a, a great help for me. Um it's I still sort of draw on those resources and and um, the knowledge that I, I gleaned through those sort of formative years in um, at university. We'll actually come back to the second part of that yeah. question, how that informs your day to day practice. Because there's some specific questions that I want to ask you about dealing with pressure and then performing with confidence, not only as it pertains to the advice you give your players, but also that informs your practice as a coach it's it's we need to step to coaching sessions with confidence and oftentimes when you're warming up or preparing for major championships the biggest events these players are playing and you also are carrying a burden of expectation that oftentimes can flow into pressure so we'll probably get to that in fact we definitely will get to that here in a few minutes but Forgive me, I should have been I'm remiss in congratulating you on the most recent triumph, the U.S. Open, just uh, last Sunday with uh, Gary Woodland coming through, yeah, crossing yeah. the crossing the, the finishing line for it. So massive congrats for that. But it seems like yeah. that's, that's pretty much a weekly occurrence these days. Does I guess um, deeper question there is what does success look like for you? How do you define success as a coach? I think the bottom line is, improving the player that you have in front of you 
I mean, that, that success, you know, ultimately, I think, you know, the kind of players that come and, and ask for assistance, they're there to get better. So I think ultimately you can only be judged on that. I mean, you can get satisfaction from other things like building a relationship with a player, you know, winning trophies with a player. But, you know, when you're a specialist in one area, sometimes a player can have great success and you're not helping them, mm-hmm. you know. So the bottom line for me is, you know, whatever you're doing with a player is you've got to make them better as a putter. Um, and I think that defines whether you're successful or not. One of the more common questions that we get from Altus clients and listeners is how do I spin it like a tour player? Well, the first step is to treat your equipment like a tour player, and that means that you've got the right golf ball and you've got fresh grooves. Visit Vokey.com to see the spin research that Bob Vokey and his team have conducted to better understand how grooves wear over time. After 75 to 100 rounds of golf, you owe it to yourself to test your grooves to make sure that they're still getting maximum spin from your wedges. Find a fitter at Vokey.com for a spin test soon. you're talking about quantitative results do you follow a very data informed or data driven approach where with your players or with the entire team that are surrounding this player sit down and talk about here's the objective that's uh, then filtered through the subjective experience the the stats if you will yeah i think now you know we've got access to some great stats i mean i think mark brody has sort of uh, reinvented that in recent years with strokes gained. So we've got a really good solid metric where we can break down the different parts of the game and get a real feel for, you know, the independent role putting would have within a player's performance. So I would use a strokes gain metric a lot with players to evaluate where they are at any point in time and then the impact that you're having with them. And, uh, you know, within obviously as a, when you've got a specialist role within any team, you know, everyone's looking at the, that metric in terms of the different areas. And I always I go back, actually, to an email that I received off uh, Sean Foley when I first started working with Justin Rose a few years ago. I think it was in 2016. Mark Brody, they'd a- actually asked Mark Brody at the, st- at the time, what does it look like? What would it look like for Justin Rose to become number one golfer in the world? And at the time, I think he was struggling, a few injuries, and he wasn't having a, a great season so in many ways it could look a million miles away but Mark broke it down quite simply that he needed I think he needed to be about 0.4 shots per round better in order to reach that level mm-hmm. which doesn't sound a lot to the average golfer but you and I know 0.4 you know there's a lot of hard work involved in that yeah and in particular Mark actually broke it down to that he could very easily achieve, I think it was like 0.3 from his putting. And further still, that he could achieve a lot of that just inside six feet. And that was, a, for me, when I saw kind of Mark break it down like that, you know, it, it's ideal. You know exactly what you need to do and the areas that you need to focus on. And for Justin in particular, it was a real kind of indication of, right, this is where the hard work needs to be focused in. Right. If we can, I want to come back to Rosie here in a minute, but go back. And I, I mentioned the preamble. That this is going to be a conversation that jumps around only because that's, yeah. the, that's the nature of these things when I, I get uh, someone with your uh, skills, intelligence, ex- intelligence and experience on the phone here. Back to you becoming the expert that you are. Was there a big break? Was there a lead domino, a, a player that you saw as your opportunity maybe uh, came in and you said, man, I better not screw this up because this is my chance to get a stable of more and more players. Probably, yeah. When I, when I look back, although I probably didn't appreciate it at the time, but when I, when I look back, I was lucky enough to meet Henrik Stenson in, I think it was 2008. I was with, I was at the Real, I was at Robert, I was at the Open, I was with Harold at the time. I was coaching and also doing a role for Yes Golf, which was a putter manufacturer and, and um, which Harold was involved in. And Pete Cowan, who was Henrik's coach, brought Henrik over because we had a Sam Putlab out on the green and he, he knew Harold and uh, he wanted Harold to take some measurements. So um, that was the first time that I'd, I'd met Henrik. I captured his data and, and, and I went about discussing what he was doing 
And kind of from that, Henrik was, I think, happy with what, you know, what we were saying and what, where we thought he could improve. So I struck up a relationship with Henrik and started to do some work with him. And I think, um, I think it was, is it 09, 010? He, he won TPC, he won the Players' Championship, which mm-hmm. was kind of my, kind of, uh, a bit of a breakthrough win for me to, you know, work with a player and have some success. So when I look back, although I, you know, prior to that, been working with some fairly successful, you know, European tour based players like Ian Garbett, who, who now works at Callaway. Um, Mark Foster, who'd been a successful tour winner, a few guys like that. Mm-hmm. It was a, you know, Henrik was a, a a player that was competing on the world stage. I think he actually finished runner-up or third place that week at Birkdale. So I think that was a significant breakthrough for me, and and uh, it's been a great experience. And you know, Henrik's been a great person to work with, and I've learned a hell of a lot through the different periods that I've worked with him. So that would be a breakthrough, I would say, for sure. What do you feel like differentiates you as a putting coach versus, let's say, anyone else that may be either a specialist putting coach on tour or just a putting coach generally amongst other duties that they perform as a coach? That's a tough question, really. Um, It's a tough one, isn't it? Because we spend our entire existence trying to fill up our own knowledge buckets and, and do what we do, and we really don't get a chance to take lessons or kind of um, sit and be the fly on the wall and experience anyone else's instruction, particularly at the level that we're yeah. at right now. Our, our calendars are so full, it's it's hard to experience what anyone else does, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I find it kind of difficult to comment on what I see other people do, but yeah. I think there's been a change, a shift in putting instruction in recent years. I mean, I think there's some great guys out there at the moment now who are, you know, active in that field. People like John Graham, you know, John's had, you know, you, had a lot of success and he's having some great success. I mean, Jeff Pierce, I know well, he's had great success with Brooks Kopka. And, you know, I, I see an approach, I see some similarities in my approach with what I see with them, which could be different to how putting instruction has been viewed in the past. You know, and the way I approach it is that I try and look at improving the player, you know, not trying to put a prescribed model on the player, mm-hmm. but looking at the player's skill set and looking at what they bring and how you could improve what they do in order for it to function better, perform better. And I think, you know, historically, a lot of putting instruction has been either very, like, you know, model-based on, like, engineering models, things like that. I mean, even Harold himself, I would say, was very prescriptive in what he wanted players to do. There was a kind of right way or a wrong way. But I think we've evolved over the years as coaches. I think access to the information that we have, you know, through things like 3D, Sandput Lab, and a better understanding of skill acquisition that's helped us evolve. So I would say that, you know, we're, we're possibly my, I don't know, what you call unique selling point or whatever, is just trying to, you know, engage with the player and make them a better version of themselves. So I'd like to think that if you look at the different players I work with, they, will, they wouldn't look the same. Sure. You know, people could identify that they have different strokes or go about, go about things in a different way, which is specific to what they need. Mm-hmm. This evolution that you've described right there, being mentored and seeing firsthand Harold's engineering background and his development of a prescriptive preference-based system and then your movement from that, not away from that, but from that, that informing, let's say, your starting point or your origins as a coach into your let's say, current version, whether that's 3.0, 4.0, or 5.0, whatever it may be, as a skills-first and organizing styles to serve those purposes of skills. Can you then speak to, unpacking it um, some depth, what those skills are? The greatest putters in the world, and I'll let you insert your answer, possess this set of what we'll call putting superpowers. What are those putting superpowers, and how do you go about, as best you can, eliciting these superpowers or cultivating those superpowers yeah well i think i'm on about version 16.0 (laughs) there you go me too i mean i think i don't think it's you know it's not rocket science you've got three basic skills as a as a golfer that you need to develop on the putting green and that's your ability to control your start line your ability to control speed and your ability to be able to predict break and i think 
there are many different methods that you could apply within each of those uh, skills. There are different techniques that you can apply within each of those skills. But if you look at any great putter, they've mastered them. And there's a there's a match up there, whether it's consciously or unconsciously, they're able to match up those skills. The difficulty for a lot of great putters is they've learned that or developed those skills intuitively. So a lot of the times they might not know how they do things or how they've learned them. But the, the good thing is that they've learned them, that they have that level of performance. Now, some people that don't have that level of performance have not found the right mix, not haven't been able to develop those skills. And, and invariably, they're the, the guys that you know we work with, aren't we? They're the guys that will seek help and guidance from a coach. And then you've got to find a way to try and help develop those skills or match them up better to try and improve their performance. But for me, I think, you can't really identify techniques. If you looked at some of the greats, they would do things very, very differently. Can you give me an example there? Looking at one of the greats that does some something so differently that you would ordinarily think, hmm, doesn't fit the mental model that I have of great putting, but yet is a great putter. Well, I think if you just look at the aesthetics of technique, you could see how over the years, you know, they've changed. If you looked at someone like Jack Nicholas and how he put it, I mean, Jack was a great pressure putter. You know, you can't say that Jack didn't put well, but if you looked at his technique and you compared it to the likes of, you know, Tiger Woods, it'd be very, very different. If you looked at Luke Donald to Tiger Woods, if you looked at Brad Faxon to Tiger Woods, very, very different in how they go about things, how they coordinate, you know, posture, grip, you know, the technical aspects are all very, very different. And I think, you know, even if you just looked at the subgroup of the PJ Tour, you know, Top 50 guys on the PJ Tour are great putters. That's a, that's a high standard. And if you look across them as a subgroup, they all go about it very, very differently, you know, technically. But they've got skill. You know, they're able to, you know, they've developed or match up those three aspects. And that's what elevates their performance. Sure. Digging into your playbook, then, the things that you would do, I call them high mileage plays, those skill-developing uh, tasks. What would be the one that you would most likely prescribe to someone, administer to someone to help them develop better start line control? Well, one of the simplest drills to get feedback on your ability to control your start line is to put through a gate. So, you know, I've developed little training aids over the years, and one of the best ones I like to use and ones which I'll, I'll always carry with me is to have like three different sizes of gate, which I know if I place along the start line, they're going to give me different degrees of error. And with different players, you may be looking to develop, you know, different levels of accuracy depending on what their needs are. So it's a very simple exercise. Find a straight put, place a gate down. So if you, for example, if you've got a 50 off the top of my head now, I could be wrong here, but a 15 millimeter gate and you have that about 12 inches, you've got about 0.7 degrees of error, which would be a pretty functional start line. Mm-hmm. So that's a very simple drill to give you feedback on your start line. But then obviously as a, as a golfer, you need to understand, well, what are the feels? What are the, the technical aspects I need to focus on? Um, or even the mental aspects, the aspects of my routine I need to focus on, which are going to help me you know, achieve that start line. So let's take a quick break in the action to recognize one of our partners, Under Armour. It's Under Armour's mission to make all athletes better through passion, design, and the relentless pursuit of innovation. And that ethos or mission statement couldn't be more aligned with the Earn Your Edge podcast. We're thankful to be powered by Under Armour. You mentioned 0.7 degrees of error. Just for the listeners out there that are recreational players or developing juniors, what would you imagine would be the median value of start line error that you would see out of, let's say, a 10 to 15 handicap or just categorize it as a poor putter? Oh, easily, you know, one and a half to two degrees of error in start line, I would say. And often then, you know, they'll, they'll compensate with where they aim the ball to try and manage that. But sometimes that, that can be difficult to control. And I think when you start looking at elite players, it'll be a lot closer to, you know, half a degree error in start line. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, some of the measurement devices that we're, we, we could catch now, I mean, Trackman have, have um, updated their software, software in recent years. And, you know, 
one of the things that I like to see from Trapman is about standard deviation in terms of like launch angle. So, you know, launch angle in terms of direction is, is encompassing face angle, strike, everything. It's just telling you, you know, where the ball is starting. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I would say like your elite players, you know, have that ability to start the ball within half a degree of the um, intended target. Yeah. Go back to high mileage plays just for a second. You mentioned the the second of the uh, foundation or triad of skills, speed control. Uh, what would be a high mileage play that the average golfer out there that can go out tomorrow and say, I'm going to do this because I heard it on the Earn Your Edge podcast. Phil Canyon, the hottest putting coach in the world, says this is the one speed control drill that I should at least start with and then graduate from. What's a good one? Well, yeah, I mean, I would say that, you know, the average golfer you, you see, but, you know, on a Wednesday and cram day, you come across across <laughs> the average goal for a lot. Don't you? One of the things that I would say is they don't really have a good control over time or length of stroke. So, and I think those two those two factors are really important, particularly in combination. So, you see very inconsistent like rhythm and tempos, and you see golfers not being able to control swing length. So. And if you look at elite players, you would tend to see way better control in those aspects. And um, I think the average golfer, they could start to appreciate, you know, what a consistent rhythm and tempo would feel like and then how they can layer on swing length on top, on top of that. Then they would start to be able to control their intended speed impact a lot easier. And that would be the biggest error that I would see with the average golfer. Sure. I think what you said right there is really important to key in on that most people spend their time recreationally wondering and worrying about the length of the motion rather than the rhythm and cadence, the timing of the motion. I think the important point of importance there to reiterate is that the length of the motion is think is what I'm hearing from you is a consequence of the timing and acceleration of, uh, of the stroke. Yeah, I mean, if your rhythm and timing can be consistent and changing the length is going to change speed, where what I see is, you know, players will have very different, you know, rhythm and timing. So even then sometimes changes in swing length don't really impact the club head speed. Mm-hmm. Or they don't know how to control length to then control speed. So I think as a foundation, if you can control time, then you can start to appreciate what the change in length of stroke can do in terms of speed control. Yeah, it's interesting. I was, uh, you speak of pro-ams. I'm out here at the ladies KPMG this week and yesterday was pro-am day and a group of three ladies playing with one of the best players in the world. And one of them in particular was ripping the putter back like she was pulling the Velcro off or maybe she had Velcro on her shoes and the, the rate of acceleration, the backstroke gave her no opportunity whatsoever to decelerate the putter enough in the forward motion to to do anything other than to hit it 10, 12 feet by, even if she was left with a, even if she had an eight foot putt. So it's fairly easy thing for me as a coach to then kind of intervene and say, Hey, I'm going to put a coin on the back of your putter. And I want you to carry the coin such that the coin doesn't move. If it's sitting in a little trough at the back edge of a putter and she was immediately able to visualize, okay, that's the cadence of the motion. I get that. Yeah, yeah. Well, a great drill in that in that circumstance, isn't it? Mm-hmm, yeah. For sure. Success. What do you feel like is your greatest success story? If you had to tell a story that says uh, this player, and it could be a recreational player as well. And the reason I ask this question is you hear so much when you're, which I don't do very much, and I don't imagine you do, listening and watching golf coverage, the pundits that sit in front of the TV or sit on in, on our TVs and um, tell us what great putters do. And you hear so much that great putters are, are born, that you can't make a great putter. And I think that's absolute crap. I think it's a load of horse manure. So can you speak to a success story that tells something different to that? Yeah, I mean, I, well, I can give you a, a success story, which I think will myth, mm-hmm. which is, I think, a good example. But I, And I think, it, you know, it's difficult for me to say, you know, this is my greatest success story because I think, you know, you can look at success in different ways. But if you're looking about what I said originally about success is improving someone as a putter, mm-hmm. then – and you're talking about whether someone can improve. You know, if you look at, say, that example where I mentioned about Sean Volley sending an email looking at Justin Rose at that time. 
So I think when I started to work with him in 2016, if I recall, I don't think he'd ever finished in the top 100 mm-hmm. of the putting stats on the PGA Tour. At that time, we were set about, you know, going to work, trying to improve. And we had a sort of slowish start, but I think last year he finished ninth, probably top 20 in the PGA Tour. And I think he was ranked second, I think, from four to eight feet, which is an important category because you have so many puts in that distance and there's a very heavy weighting on those puts if you miss them. And I don't think he'd ever finish in the top 100 of that category. So in 2018, you know, after a body of work, Justin showed a level of performance, which for me shows that if you work on the right things, you have the right attitude and you believe in what you do and you draw confidence from those small steps that you can significantly improve. And I think that was a fairly big improvement. I remember speaking to Mark at the time, Mark Brody, and uh, he, he made a comment about the significance of that improvement, you know, statistically. So I think Rosie is a great example that, yeah, you, if you work on the right things, you can get better. It's an area of the game where you don't, it's not down to physical gifts. Mm-hmm. You know, it can be down to just, you know, hard work, working smart, and and certainly confidence, you know, belief in what you're doing. Yeah. You know, you need certain physical gifts, don't you, to be able to hit the ball 330 yards, you know. Um, but to roll a ball online at five miles per hour is not that difficult. It's a little bit easier, isn't it? Um, <laughs> the gifts that you could argue that you might need, but I think essentially most of what you need as a pussy you can learn. So, you know, it's an area of the game, no matter what age you are or what standard. If you get involved in the right process, you can make yourself a better putter. You can perform to a higher level. I couldn't agree more. In fact, with all of my physical inadequacies, the adequacies I do have allow me to be a, a really good putter. So that's the one thing that I kind of survive on as I'm playing golf as, as infrequently as I do these days. And you brought it back to Rosie beautifully. A couple of things that Rosie's doing, I want to evolve into a deeper conversation. The first about the claw putting grip. Do you feel like there's a mechanical advantage in putting with the claw or is there a grip style that provides a player mechanical advantage? I think there's a grip style for every player that would give them an advantage. Mm-hmm. I think, obviously, you know, if you think about the club, the handle, you know, through the hands, it's the one area where you're applying, like, the torque and force to the club, isn't it? So your grip and, you know, in particular, your, your wrist movements have a big impact on how that club moves. So, and because of people's individual motions, you know, grit styles can have a big impact. And I think there's a lot of trial and error in, in that. I don't think there's a kind of one grit fits all type scenario. But by understanding what the player does and by exploring different ways in which they can hold the club, then you can start to help, you know, move the club more efficiently. You can influence their pattern. And I think, you know, with Rosie, one of the things that we did was to, to, to look at that. You know, there's certain things that he did in his stroke which we wanted to try and improve, and, and, and the claw grip helped him manage a lot of things in his stroke. And the important thing for him as well, and he's gone on record as, as saying that, it, it kind of nullified the, his stroke. And I think what he could then feel, his, his right hand wasn't as active. And in particular, because we changed the plane in which that right hand sat, then any radial deviation that he had, so, um, toe down direction. Yeah. We turned it into a direction where it was in plane. Mm-hmm. And I think what he could then feel is a more consistent shape and path, you know? So, yeah. There's a definite, you know, what definitely a grip that's going to help you improve your stroke. It's a case of trying to find it. And I think that's why you see so many good players tinker. You know, they'll tinker with their grips, aren't they? They'll change hand positions, they'll change grip sizes. They're constantly tinkering a lot of the times, and sometimes that can be an ineffective search. But if a coach can help them be more effective, then you can really find that, um, you know, that holy grail in terms of you know optimizing what they do. How would you say a coach might be more effective in informing? or refining like a GPS unit might help you find your target destination in a car, that search, is it with technology? Meaning with Rosie, did you use Sam Putlab? Did you use Capto? What other technologies were you using that said, yep, 
This claw grip provides you an advantage in reducing or eliminating any radial deviation, any deviation out of plane in a toe downward direction, either in transition or during the stroke motion, and also maybe nullifying the um, pronation, supination, the twisting of the face, let's say, off target during the stroke. Well, you need feedback, don't you? I mean, sure. you know, if you're trying to consciously improve something, you need some level of feedback. And I think with, with Justin, what we did at the time was to use Sam Putlap. Obviously, when I first met him, we had his sort of baseline data. You get an understanding of what the player's pattern is. You know, he had this um, bias to leave the club face open and hit pushes. And as a consequence, then he, he would at times aim left. Left or right cuts became a little bit more difficult for him. And, you know, through the work that we did, you know, we were working on improving that by looking at some of his mechanics. And then, you know, through trialing different grips and in particular the claw, what came out was he could control the club face a lot better because it altered his wrist sequence. So, you know, club face angle impact was more accurate, but it was also a, a way higher level of consistency. And that's obviously an important thing, isn't it? You know, not, not so much the actual error itself, but it's being able to do something consistently well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, you, you need that level of feedback, particularly at this level, working with these guys, you know, your naked eye, you know, it doesn't see that much in comparison to what you can measure. So you need objective data. You know, the coach's role is to obviously interpret that data. And, and you know, for me, I, I embrace technology. I like technology. It helps me as a coach. It can be dangerous, you know, in the wrong hands. We all, we all know that. But I think if you can learn to use it well, then as a coach, you're a distinct advantage in terms of being you know, being able to help improve your students. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. In, in fact, before we get to the next question or conversation piece, I want to thank you for elaborating to the depth you did with, with Rosie, just one of your tens or hundreds of exceptional clients. And it serves to give the listeners a really descriptive a deep understanding of your depth of expertise and the level of turning over all stones to uncover a best practice for a player that yielded world-class results and moved him into one of the top five putters in the world to complement an amazing uh, long game and to complement an amazing person. Rosie's just a, a great dude. I love spending time around him, so I really appreciate that. I think the next point that I want to go to is as a world-class coach, you are forward-facing. You spend time, as a lot of us do, answering questions from, well, taking hits, I guess, from critics. And the one thing that I love, absolutely love about you is you're unabashed in stating your case with certainty, with facts. And many may say ruthless in handling those trolls that just want to jab and and fire uppercuts uh, behind a keyboard. Can you speak to that a little bit? And I think the reason I wanted to get to that question is so often we're accused of overcoaching when we use technology, when in reality, technology is only sitting there serving as a secondary resource to confirm that what it is or where it is that we're heading in terms of like a, a direction to develop skill is appropriate, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think two questions there. The first one is, I'm not afraid to stick up for myself. Mate. I love it, mate. <laughs> when you're five foot seven and, and uh, you know, you're the smallest guy in the football team at school and, you know, you, you've got to stick up for yourself a little bit. And, you know, my mum and dad are feisty characters and I guess I've got a little bit of a, you know, a few of their traits. So I take umbrage when, when I feel like I've, you know, someone's doing me wrong. So I'm quite happy to stick up for myself. But if, you know, if if I feel like I'm I'm right, then I'm prepared to do that. If if I'm wrong, I'm quite happy to admit that I'm wrong. So, you know, social media can be quite a horrible place at times, isn't it? And mm-hmm. if people are taking pop shots at you, then um, that, you know that's the negative side of it. But um, you know, in in those situations, I'm more than happy to stick up for myself. And I also quite find it as an uh, an opportunity to express a little bit of humour at the same time. So you can try and turn it into a little bit more of a fun place if you if you poke fun at people. So I'm not afraid of that. You know, sometimes it can be interpreted badly. You know, it's easy to come across maybe a, being a little bit too harsh at times. But it, it is um, it is what it is, really. You just kind of uh, 
you know, you live by the sword, die by the sword, don't you, in, in that situation. Yeah, but not only in defense of, let's say, your own coaching practice, ideologies, and success, you also leap to defense and, and not leap, but you're not afraid. You'll, you'll go out there and you'll support both colleagues and also players, and, and you do it so well. I think that just serves as a compliment. <laughs> yeah, well, I think like the, the downside of social media is that people can just write what they want, can't they, and, um, and very easily create a, a misperception of what somebody's doing. And, um, you know, and sometimes it's, you know, some people find it difficult to, you know, to write that. So, I, you know, if I see colleagues out there being bashed or, someone misrepresenting something i'm not afraid to you know put my two pence in because for me you know you've got to stick up for people haven't you you know some people don't have access or or don't want to defend themselves but i'm quite happy to do that for them particularly you know buddies or or people or colleagues that i know are doing a good job out there and are going about things in the right way so yeah, I don't mind doing that. I quite enjoy it at times. I like a bit of banter on, on social media. So <laughs> it gives me something to do when I'm at the airport camp. Right on, yeah. We get a lot of downtime, down time, don't we? Yeah. And then the use of technology, maybe you can speak to that. And then a follow-up question to use of technology to benefit. And maybe we've already explored that enough and we can move on to the second part of the question is, what's coming in terms of like best practices? If there's things that you do right now and that we do right now in coaching the best players in the world that we think are the most effective things to be doing right now. But is there something in technology or psychology or neurology, some coaching practice that you can see coming that you're already using that you feel is going to be a next practice? Well, I, th- I think the portability of technology now is getting better. So we're able to measure players more closer to the environment that they perform in. You know, I think like one of the more recent pieces of technology that I've really enjoyed using is Capto, where I've been able to measure what the player is doing as they move about putting green, whether it be on the course or just on the practice putting green. So you can really get a sense of how a player, how their pattern is changing, you know, in the ever-changing environment, whether it's the downhill, left, right, put up or right to left. And also that's what golf's about, isn't it? You've got, you know, all these different shots or puts that you need to hit, you know, what happens, you know, what's actually happening with that golf as they go about this process where a lot of technical, technology previously wasn't very portable so you were really stuck on just measuring a player over a certain shot and i think as we improve portability and we can start to actually get it on a golf course so that we can measure players when they play that would be interesting for me because ultimately you know when you're out on a golf course there's a you've got a different nervous system haven't you so that's going to affect coordination and uh, as much as we we think we know what players do. We don't because we've never really measured it on a golf course. We've got our naked eye to back things up based upon the data that we've collected in practice or a simulated environment in practice, but we, we don't actually know. So the ability to be able to measure players on the course in tournament conditions, for me, I think that would be the next sort of learning curve from a you know understanding of biomechanics, understanding of coordination point of view. Right. Uh, Capto is a, a great one to uh, ring the bell, bell on. What about putt view, the virtual reality glasses? Do you see those as being a piece of tech that's going to be more pervasive on the professional tours? Yeah, I do actually. Yeah. I mean, putt view is a great piece of kit. It's helped me, it's helped me coach better. It's helped me to show players the different sort of perceptual cues that they can use. It's helped me allow players to understand you know green reading better and i think as they develop their technology and it's more accessible outdoors you know essentially what they can do now they can scan a green and then through the augmented reality glasses they can you can step on a green with those glasses on and basically see the projected break on any put so that's that's not available yet but they have that technology and they're developing that so for, for me, once that becomes readily available, that's going to really help people appreciate and understand green reading better. Mm-hmm. But also 
appreciate attentional cues. You know, what are the correct attentional cues for that golfer in order to help man in order to help manage their speed control? Um, you know, what are the correct attentional cues which are ultimately going to help manage their performance? Because I think, you know, not many people appreciate the golfers. Well, I know a lot of coaches do, but not many golfers appreciate how important those finer aspects are on the overall you know package of performance. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I'm uh, I'm net long on on both Capto and Putt View, particularly as a force multiplier to improve green reading, like you just elaborated on. So thanks for that uh, that description right there. Go back to the two points that I made earlier on confidence and pressure and the intersection of those two. How do you help your players deal with putting under pressure and instill in them a sense of confidence they have what they need to succeed? And then also on the other side of that is just speak to that from your your side as a coach. Yeah, well, um, I think I'm not a psychologist by any way, shape or form, and I don't I don't pretend to even cross those boundaries and, and, and look at, you know, areas where you're, you know, pinpointing how players perform or, you know, under pressure. I mean, there's certain, I think there's a little, there are gray areas between psychology and, and sort of more technical coaching in terms of like skill acquisition, you know, how people best learn skills and things like that, which I will definitely delve into. But I think, you know, from my perspective, the players I work with is, you know, you're giving them an understanding of, of what they do, what their biases are, and how they manage them. But ultimately, you know, they're the ones that are going out there and pulling the trigger. And um, I think, you know, they're the ones that are learning how to deal with pressure. And you can simulate things in practice and you can help sort of train skills in a way that gives them a chance to be more robust under pressure. But ultimately, it's how that person deals with, you know, competing in that environment and um you know ultimately it, it's down to them really and there's nothing specific that i would do in terms of like the psychological aspect i'm just trying to give them a really good understanding of their stroke so that they, they know what they need to deal with and try and help them train in the most effective way so that when they go out there they can more easily access the skills that the you know that they've developed the rest is really up to them. And I think sometimes, you know, as, as coaches, we get way too much credit and also way too much blame at times. <laughs> you know, we're just trying to give the, the, the players, you know, some snippets of information, help them structure some things to be more efficient. But ultimately, they're the guys who go out there and, and handle the pressure. And at times, I, I don't know how they do it. You know, I really don't know how they do it. You know, just, you know, you, you've been there yourself several times, Cameron. You know, that Sunday on a, on, you know, on a major, there's a lot at stake for these guys, isn't it? It's their defining moment and how they're able to go out and play to the level that they do. I actually don't know how they do it. You know, they're immense athletes to be able to cope with the pressure that they do over the time frame that they experience it. It's not, you know, like a 90 minute football match, is it, where you've got teammates to rely on? You're out there for six hours, just you and your caddy, and you've got to deal with a lot. So, mm-hmm. you know, all, all credit to, how they deal with that it reminds me of the ben hogan quote if it is to be it's up to me so true words never been never been spoken and how about you how do you what's your relationship with with pressure and then how that is let's say repelled or influenced by your own self-confidence well i shit myself plenty enough times (laughs) that you, you kind of start to learn how to deal with it a little bit better right yeah i mean you're human aren't you i mean the times when you feel you know more nervous whether it's working, you know, when I go back to working with, you know, like, you know, a big client for the first time, you know, you have those butterflies and you think, well, how's this going to go? But you just stick to what you know, don't you? And you just try and focus on your job like these guys do. And, um, you know, I'll be nervous if you're warming up a player and it's a Sunday and you've got a chance to win. But, you know, if you've got your you've got your routines laid, laid out, you know what the warm-up needs to be, then you just focus on that and you just try and do the same things, communicate in the same way. You might feel a little bit different, but you feel different because you're in that situation and it's a good sign, isn't it? So yeah. I think it's all the same types of approach that a player would take is what a coach would take. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember when um, 
the Sunday morning in 2016 when I got up and I drove down to the Troon and uh, Henrik's like leading the open at the time. I remember sitting in the car thinking, Jesus Christ, I, I feel nervous. And then I remember thinking, well, if I feel nervous, God knows what Henrik feels like. And then when I get there, he's like the coolest man in the world. And then that settles you down and you just go about your business, don't you? But it's, um, you know, we're human. We have emotions. We have feelings. You, you might not show it at times, but yeah, there'll be times where I'll feel particularly nervous, but you just crack on because you know what you need to do and you just get involved in doing it. Yeah. Beautiful. It's particularly what you said right there that Henrik's air of calm, air of confidence also allowed you the opportunity to find a different uh, frequency that you were operating in. And, and it's one of the coaching superpowers that I see out of Pete Cowan and Butch Harmon and you, quite frankly, and then the many tour coaches that I get to spend time around is that they have a sense, an aura, a, a reverent power about them that is disarming of a level of stress, call it anxiety, call it pressure, call it what you will for those that are around them. And it's, it's like so often thought of as fluff and unimportant, but I think it's such an important value and such an important skill that we as humans interacting with other people that um, have emotions need to cultivate and grow more of. I don't know how to do it, but yeah. <laughs> talking to you helps. Yeah, I think it's massive, to be honest. I think it's an undervalued aspect of, of coaching, particularly I think it, at the level, you know, where, where we coach in, in that environment, not necessarily the level. There are great coaches who don't operate on tour, you know, who are developing kids in an academy or develop, you know, coaching the members. But I think in that environment, you know, where you're working with elite players, how you communicate with them, your interpersonal skills, how you deal with them on a day-to-day basis, I think is really important. And I've been fortunate, you know, in, in my role, that I actually get to see a lot of other coaches coach, although it, they might not be cutting coaches, but I'll, I've been fortunate enough to spend a lot of time watching Pete Cowan teach. You know, I've, I've shared a lot of students with Pete. And, you know, Pete, he's, he's got a great demeanor under pressure situations. I've seen him coach at Ryder Cup when the player's been really struggling and it's go time, players having a panic, and Pete's got such a, an aura about him and how he goes about his business, you can just see that the player draws confidence from it. And it might not be the information that he's giving the player, but it's just the manner in which he's you know, dealing with that player. And I think that's really, really important because you know, you're talking a high-level sport here and you know, confidence is a really important factor. You know, these guys are so skillful, you know, that they could probably use very different techniques and still get the job done. But the confidence and belief that they have and their mindset, frame of mind is so important. And the people that they have around them can have an impact on that. So I think how you're dealing, communicating, you know, like I say, the interpersonal skills become very, very important. Like you said, it's like fluff. You know, some people can call it fluff, but. And I, I see a lot of criticism at times about Butch Harmon and, and his style. If, if you looked at his track record, it's fantastic. And you could say, well, you know, he's working with great players. Well, I've seen a lot of coaches ruin, you know, great, good players through poor information. So it's a skill in itself to be able to, you know, cultivate a good player and let them develop. And if it's down to how you're dealing with them interpersonally, the the environment you're helping structure, then that's a skill in itself. It's not always about technical knowledge. You know, there's a craft to coaching. And like you say, you see it, you see it a lot with people who are successful in that environment because it's important in that environment. Might not be as important in a different environment, whether you're coaching a kid, um, you know, junior school, which, well, I'm sure. There's going to be different aspects which will be, will be important, but in particular, I just see it very important when you're dealing with elite players is, is that element, and it's very profound, the effect that you can have. Yeah, thousand percent, and I think it's a precursor to anyone's, be it performer, be it coach, be it business person's best performing self coming out. It's um, that precursor step is getting the mind right, and that oftentimes yeah. comes out in uh, attitude and attitude shift, uh, which sometimes yeah. is internal and sometimes it comes from an outside source. And the outside sources we're talking about are our actions and manners as as coaches. 
So I, I got to ask a lot of people, what questions would you love to ask Phil Kenyon if you had him on the phone for a little over an hour, which we're right at an hour. So I appreciate the time. Yeah, no problem. Many have already asked, but so many people wanted to ask the question, how do you manage so many players, particularly at events, Monday through Wednesday, when, you know, the most important in anyone's world is me or themselves and everyone wants their peace. Everyone wants their time. How do you do it? How do you juggle so many? And maybe juggles the wrong word. Manage is a better word. I think I'm lucky in that the guys that I work with are all really good guys. And uh, I think they kind of appreciate possibly how, how structured that we, we, we may need to be. And I'll try and book guys into time so that, you know, they know at, you know, 3 p.m., 4 p.m., I'm going to be there and, and they're going to get some time. So I think, you know, they're, they're flexible at times. I mean, it doesn't always work out, but I, I think I, I travel to enough events that I, I, I make sure that everyone gets enough contact time, I, I hope. And I would like to think as well in, in the way that we work on stuff is they have some ownership where, you know, and I think it's important that they have time on their own, you know, at, at events to work through and, and just start to feel and, and appreciate things themselves. You don't always need me there. But somehow it, I managed to make it work. <laughs> if you speak to the players, they might say a little differently. But for the most part, I, I work with a really good bunch of guys who are quite understanding. And as a consequence, I'm able to sort of plan my diary in advance, which helps. Yeah, there's a sports psychologist friend of mine, Michael Gervais, who does an amazing podcast as well. And one of his deciding factors as to whether he'll work with a person, male or female, is there's a no dickhead rule. Um, so... I think that when you're looking through your client list and recognize that, okay, this one's going to be difficult because this one's demanding. I think that's his, one of his vetting factors at least. So That's really important. You know, I've had this conversation with some sort of friends of mine and I think you can, you can afford to have maybe one guy who's a bit of a drainer, mm -hmm. but more than one and it can really sort of mess things up. And I think I've heard that. Is that a, um, New Zealand rugby phrase, no dickheads. Is that a philosophy that they had in the dressing room? It could very well be because I think he's done some work with the All Blacks. Yeah, I think so. But it applies. I can safely say I've got no dickheads at the moment, which is good. It makes my life easier. It's great having a, a culture of what you do and who you surround yourself with that uh, amplifies everyone's efforts, which I think is what you're describing uh, right there. Specifically, though, what about Sunday last week? when Rosie and Woodland are in the same group and you're warming both of them up, how did, how did you juggle that one? Well, I, I didn't go. Oh, so you'd already left. I'd, I'd actually left. I had a flight at uh, 4 p.m. from San Francisco. And uh, so, yeah, I, uh, I was actually um, making my way home. So I managed to dodge that one. Otherwise, it could have been a little difficult. <laughs> Good for you, mate. Good for you. Uh, you've been great with your time. I've got a couple of quick hitters possibly to uh, to finish yeah, with sure here. Enough. Who's the person you most get mistaken for, your doppelganger, your lookalike? On the PGA Tour, yeah, Cameron McCormick. <laughs> Likewise. <laughs> I've had so many people say, morning, Ken. <laughs> the same has happened to me, mate, as well. Has it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I've great. always thought you were good looking, though, Cam. You yeah, know that. Likewise. Yeah, we'll continue to yeah. uh, pump each other's tires, won't we? <laughs> yeah. As it relates to performing in golf generally or putting, what do you feel like is overrated or overpracticed? Um, a straight putt. Mm, yeah. I see so many guys do block practice on a straight putt. Or, or block practice where they hit the same putt multiple times. So very simple, I think, you know, variability, getting contextual interference, you know, mix up your practice is the best thing that you could do for practice. So one ball and never hit the same putt twice. Beautiful. In close, I think that uh, said simply, your core magical process is a process of transformation. If I may, if you haven't already, I might suggest adding a new title to your business card. And that's the title of The Alchemist in um, <laughs> full full reverence for you and your abilities. So That, rem that reminds me of a pub in Manchester, actually, The Alchemist. Have, have you shown your feisty nature on social media in that same pub in Manchester? 
No, I try and leave the phone at home when I go drinking. <laughs> no, it's not a good combination. I'm, I'm talking about physical feistiness, not uh, social media feistiness. Oh, no, no, sorry. Yeah, no. <laughs> no, I'm quite reserved. <laughs> good for you. Finally, where can people learn more about you? How can we direct more attention your way, assuming that you want that attention or the or attention of your mini business enter- or your business enterprises outside of your day-to-day coaching? Yeah, so obviously we've got a website, haroldswashputting.com co.uk there's sort of information on there you know for coaches we run a range of seminars called putting solutions and um you, you know you can find us on social media as well under swash putting on both twitter instagram and uh, yeah feel free to interact i'll always try and engage with sort of followers and um answer the questions where i can Fantastic. Phil, you've been amazing with your time, knowledge. You've been giving as you are to your players every day that they get to spend time with you. I couldn't appreciate it more. I look forward to seeing you here in just a few weeks at uh, Port Rush and I uh, hope that we both uh, are standing there on Sunday morning uh, warming up uh, players for the final group. Yeah, that would be nice. No, I, I appreciate the invite, Cam. I listen to your podcast. I think it's brilliant. You've had... Um some great guests on so i think you're doing a great job so it was an honor to to be on so thank you you've added to that list and we thank you for that again i look forward to seeing you soon thanks very much for listening to this episode if you want to learn more about altus performance go check out altusperformance.com you can also follow us on twitter at team altus and instagram at altus performance Also, thanks to Cordy Walker for his wonderful production work on this and coming episodes of Earn Your Edge.